I'm Seth. And I'm Jonathan. And welcome to No Experts Allowed. You know what we love? The Bible. You know what we don't love? When people use the Bible to scare or hurt others instead of allowing it to transform them and their communities. So we're trying something different. Two Bible nerds hosting a podcast that isn't about technical details, but is about two simple questions. What's the story and what's the point? One of us will prepare for the conversation. Let's call them the non-expert. The other will respond to the story as they hear it. We'll call them, and you, the storyteller. So we can show you that you don't need to be an expert to hear the Bible speak to our world. Join us. Let's tell a good story today. Seth? Jonathan? What's going on, man? I'm doing great. I'm on vacation with my parents. That's incredible. Yeah, it's great in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, and it's pouring here today. <laughs> but this is a perfect time to podcast. Yeah, well, I'm still at, I'm still at home, so I'm not on vacation, let alone on vacation with your parents. <laughs> but I'm glad I'm glad you're taking some time to be away. I guess this is our, technically our first on location episode recording, yeah. which is really exciting. Uh, it's raining here too. I'm sorry that it's raining there for you. It's okay. Yesterday was beautiful. So, one beautiful day, one rainy day. We made out pretty well for the end of October. Fair. Well, Seth, vacation Seth, I should clarify. What would you do in this particular situation? Would you want to only be able to listen to I'm Gonna Be, or in parentheses, 500 Miles by The Proclaimers, or Sweet Caroline by Neil Diamond for the rest of time. Oh, man. Okay. I already know my answer. Okay. I'm going to be because when I was in college, every year we picked a room theme song. And my sophomore year, it was A Thousand Miles by Vanessa Carlton. But before you go A Thousand Miles, you have to go 500 miles. <laughs> so we listened to that song Every single day, and then listen to A Thousand Miles by Vanessa Carlton before we went to bed every night. <laughs> so it's got, you got a lot of sentiment. Yeah, I've already it, listened to like... it at least 180 times. <laughs> <laughs> I've got it, yeah. And that's just a testimony to how I feel about it as well. I'm going with I'm Gonna Be by the Proclaimers as well, because it's just a spectacular song. And. Sweet Caroline, this might be controversial, but it's garbage. <laughs> I agree. It is so bad. I was, okay, so I was in a wedding party a few years ago. For the sake of those involved, I will not name names. But we were at the, the rehearsal, it was like a rehearsal lunch, and we were getting ready to kind of go to separate things for the rest of the day. And the bride asked the wedding party, oh, we got our last request from the DJ for any additional songs. Does anyone does anyone want to add anything? Make sure that anything's on the playlist. And I said, "Oh, Despacito," because that song had just come out, and all I wanted to do was to dance to that song the whole night. One of the other people in the wedding party looked at me and said, "Ugh, I hate that song. You can't even dance to it. You know what song we should include? Sweet Caroline." <laughs> 
Which just goes to show you that apparently white people think dancing is like swaying in a circle and just yelling yeah. things at each other. <laughs> <laughs> it's embarrassing. Which is why when I wake up, oh, I know I'm going to be. I'm going to be the man who's waking up next to you, Seth. This is going to be a good time. Maybe we should just sing that for the rest of the podcast. Yeah. What do you think? I think we should. I don't think that would go over yeah, very well. That would be a change. <laughs> From our regular formatting. Well, instead of that change, how about we go ahead and you can read our passage for today. That would be great. This is Micah chapter 3, verses 5 through 12 from the New Revised Standard Version. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets, who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against those who put nothing into their mouths. Therefore it shall be night to you, without vision, and darkness to you, without revelation. The sun shall go down upon the prophets, and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced, and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might, to declare to Jacob his transgression, and to Israel his sin. Hear this, you rulers of the house of Jacob, and chiefs of the house of Israel, who abhor justice and pervert all equity, who build Zion with blood, and Jerusalem with wrong. Its rulers give judgment for a bribe, its priests teach for a price, its prophets give oracles for money, yet they lean upon the Lord and say, Surely the Lord is with us, no harm shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Whew. Yeah, easy, light, and breezy, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> so with that, why did you pick the NRSV for us this week? Okay, so I know we've talked about the NRSV before. But just a quick recap, NRSV is one of the most widely accepted biblical translations among Bible scholars, and it focuses on trying to translate the original manuscripts of the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament as closely word for word as it possibly can, while still making like coherent sense in English. I wanted to focus on a, a few pieces of language today, which I know might be a little unusual for us. But I think this translation helps get at what these original writings were looking at a little more closely and allows us to pick it apart in a way that most closely resembles what might have been said based on the information we have available. Great. So as you read through that text, what are some of the things that stood out to you? Okay. My favorite line is toward the end, when the rulers are giving judgment for a bribe and the priests are teaching, but they're making money out of it. And the prophets are given oracles, but they're also making money from it. I love that line. I mean, what an indictment of kind of the way Israel's been operating. Yeah, absolutely. Like, they've been making money, right? Like, that's been the goal. Mm -hmm. But only some people are kind of coming out ahead in the deal. And then they're all saying, oh, but surely the Lord is with us. Kind of that juxtaposition between some people are getting ahead. And they're claiming to have the Lord's favor. And then it, it's obvious that some people are in that same position. 
What a yeah, word. absolutely. Well the, well, the three positions that you mentioned there, rulers or kings, priests and prophets, you know, prophet, priest, and king, it's kind of the trifecta of the most important offices in Israel, right? It's, it's these positions that come with them some measure of authority and some measure of respect in Israel's way of being, in their, in their way of living. And the fact that those positions are all clearly and specifically indicted here, as you said, I love that language, it, it highlights a tension that is not just, to use a modern concept, a few bad apples, <laughs> yeah. but it is more so a critique of the office and the structure itself and those folks that are, are using those places and positions for their own gain and their own advantage. I think that tension between those who have and those who have not is also highlighted at the beginning of what you read too. In verse five, where it's talking about the prophets who lead the people astray, the ones who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against those who put nothing into their mouths. So those Mm -hmm. who are saying all is well because they're feeling secure, but they're not just ignoring the problem of those not being secure, those that don't have enough to eat. They're pointing the finger of blame for that situation on those who don't have anything to eat. And so there's this there's this hmm. kind of division that runs through this passage of two ways of being, those who use power to their advantage and those who suffer under those who have this power. It becomes pretty clear too whose side yeah. God is on in those situations, yeah. right? Yeah. I feel like we're, this is early, but I feel like we're already bit, knocking on the door of what's the point oh you might you might like, be picking up like where i might be going we're right there i want to pump the brakes a little bit because i think hearing a little bit more of the context of the book of micah can help us dive a little deeper okay. here uh, so micah is one of the more famous prophetic books in the hebrew bible strictly because of <laughs> one verse <laughs> yeah. in uh, Micah chapter 6, verse 8, which is, What does the Lord require of you, O mortal, but to seek justice, to love mercy or love kindness, and to walk humbly with God? It's a beautiful verse, and like so many that we pick and choose from places in Scripture, it is really removed from the context of the book. Most of Micah sounds more like what we read today, with a lot of harsh criticism and judgment cast against the leaders of Israel as they were beginning to face pressures from the Assyrian Empire, Mm -hmm. the first large external power that began to threaten Israel's existence as it itself was becoming established and more powerful in that region of the world. It almost seems like Micah is answering the question that people at large are starting to ask at the time. It's like, how can we explain this looming disaster? How can we explain why these enormous armies are pressuring our borders? How do we explain why our people don't have enough to eat, especially when those that are holding power seem to have more than enough? When you think about the abundance and excess of a king like Solomon, and this Solomon predates the time that Micah is dated to, but someone who uses all these resources to build a throne and a palace for himself and then a temple for God that is truly dwarfed (laughs) by the size of Solomon's own temple and takes the God of the wilderness, the God of the wanderers, 
the god who can only be housed in a tent and an ark that is meant to move hmm. and confines this god to a house that is not even the biggest house <laughs> on the block. And so in the midst of all of that, Micah comes forward to start really pointing out to start doing the work of prophecy of helping folks see more clearly hmm. what is going on at the time. And I don't know, there are some interesting images here about how those false prophets contrast with the true prophecy offered by Micah. So the prophets again, who are valued for their ability to see, to proclaim oracles or visions the punishment that those false prophets are getting is to only exist then in the darkness, mm -hmm. to not be able to see. Yeah. Hmm. In the same way you mentioned the diviners, they they are those who supposedly communicate with God in some way. They will not be heard anymore, and they won't hear from God. And that contrast for me really stands out especially when you compare to the prophetic work of Micah, even in this passage, kind of pulling back the curtain and offering that revealing moment, that revelation of sorts of what's really going on in Israel at the time. So as you hear all of that, is there anything that from this passage or from something that I said even, it stands out to you as helping you think about this passage a little differently? The broader context that you talked about with with this kind of encroaching Assyrian army and this question that's building up in the community, like why, why is this happening? And it's, it's into that, that Micah says this, it's fascinating to me. Like I would have expected like something that's encouraging maybe. And maybe that's mm -hmm. why people hang on, on six, eight, but this is like, this is a definitely a condemnation of what they've been doing, which is, that's just an, interesting to me too like what i would expect would be maybe good news but this is actually and i think this is that this is just this pushes back against the people who are using their positions of power for their own gain which is then i think good news for people who don't have anything to put in their mouths right like exactly well that's the question i think that we don't often follow up with the concept of good news yeah. uh good <laughs> news for whom and, I don't know, when we think about the good news of the gospel, you know, <laughs> which literally means good news, Jesus talks about coming to proclaim good news to the poor and to provide freedom for the captive. And it sounds like the people that Jesus was coming to provide good news for might be the same group that Mike mm -hmm. is providing good news for. Those that are hurting, those that are hungry, those that are uh, struggling to pay for participating in the religious life of Israel because of these priests and these prophets who are taking money for their teaching because of the rulers who are taking a bribe for their judgments. I think you're right to highlight the fact that some might point to Micah and be like, why so negative? <laughs> <laughs> but we only, we only ask that question because there's something about us. And I say us as you and me, two, <laughs> two white dudes that see critiques to power as dangerous and threatening rather than an opening of the door to life and hope for those who are hurting. 
Um, and that opening of the door, that like reordering that's being offered here, I think is summed up in a word that's common in, in Micah, even in Micah 6 to 8. And that's the idea of justice. Mm. So the word that's used a couple times in this passage that you read as justice is the Hebrew word mishpat. And this word comes up in several different places throughout the Hebrew Bible, but it is somehow intrinsically linked to the character of God. Now, depending on the context, this word mishpat might be translated as decision or judgment. Like there is some semblance of like legal proceedings in some of it. But more often, it's seen as the the way of ordering or reordering Israel's life to be more in line with God's character. One of my favorite places where the idea of mishpat justice also comes up is actually from the story of the prophet Deborah in the book of Judges, who is identified as one of Israel's leaders who was sitting under a tree and the leaders of all over Israel would come to seek her mishpat. <laughs> That's often translated as either wisdom, decisions, or judgment. But in reality, they were looking for someone who could speak the order of God, the character of God, into the way that they were living their lives. And so just before this passage uh, that you read, in verse 1 of this same chapter, Micah 3, it starts off with the broad question, you rulers of Israel, shouldn't you know Mishpat? Shouldn't you know Hmm. justice? And then we hear Micah offer this statement of confidence in chapter 8. So he's filled with power, the spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might. This, this direction he's able to offer contrasted directly with the rulers of the house of Jacob and the chiefs of the house of Israel who abhor Mishpat and pervert all equity. And so there seems to be something about this misordering of life that we've been talking about, how some have enough and cry peace while also declaring war on those who have nothing to put into their mouths. Something about that stands against not just God's idea of justice, but about against the very character of God. So that's one of the language pieces that I wanted to get to. I should also say, I mentioned this before about how the diviners would no longer be able to hear that was the inspiration for the WWYDITPS <laughs> question is thinking about maybe th- rethinking hearing and music listening a little bit differently. <laughs> but um, so that's a lot of that's a lot of context that I hope provides a little more depth to this passage. But I'm wondering for you, is there anything else that that stands out or do you think we want to now now make that jump we almost made earlier over to the conversation about what's the point? I, th- I think we're ready to make the jump. To part two. So we we got at this before, but I want to I want to center a little bit around the idea of prophecy, and want to hear from you about like in the church today, when you hear about prophecy, how is that often used? Oh, I often think of it as like people who can predict the future or tell what's going to happen. Yeah, I've definitely I've certainly heard that. I've also heard like speaking prophetically as in kind of in a similar way, but kind of offering critique, offering uh, even a word of hope over someone or something. It's like even in an interpersonal way, like in a moment of prayer, God is giving me a prophetic word for you right now. 
And, you know, th this are just some of the ways that I'm, I'm considering it here. I think common among all of these, though, is, again, rooted back in this idea of seeing, yeah. right? That there's this, there's this way that maybe not everyone can see clearly. And even the prophets can't see clearly all the time. Mm -hmm. But we're given these moments of clarity. These moments, again, of peeling back the curtain to see what's really going on. And I'm remembering one of our professors, uh, Dr. Eric Seibert, at our undergrad, Messiah, well, formerly Messiah <laughs> College, now Messiah yeah. University, talking about how the work of the prophet is twofold. And we hear this comparison, I think I've heard this with preachers too, that they both need to comfort the afflicted and speak words of hope and to afflict the comfortable and speak these kinds of words of judgment. And as I think about my own social location right now and think about my own position, there's part of me that wonders how prophetic I can be if I maintain the level of comfort that is common among those whose comfort I'm trying to afflict, hmm. if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I'd say it another way. If I want to speak against the power structures that I still am a part of, that I still benefit from, how does my how does my critique carry? Because it almost seems like if I need to associate with anyone in this passage, it's the people who proclaim peace <laughs> while their mouths are full. Mm -hmm. And can can I offer a prophetic word to afflict that comfort while my mouth is full? I know that's still pretty abstract, but. I think what I'm getting at is this idea of what if we want to be prophetic and peel back the curtain as to what's really going on what does it need to cost us to make that kind of statement in a way that communicates similarly to how we see modeled here in Micah I know easy, easy questions right yeah this is like a step back and up I think you talked about earlier when you were kind of thinking about Micah in general, about how prophets are people who see. I've been thinking about how prophets see the way that the world works in all of its intricacies. They can see that this, this injustice is happening, that some people are paying the judge to get the verdict that they want. I guess my more fundamental question is, can I even see from the position that I have right now? So it's almost like some of our proximity to power, some of the comfort that we may be experiencing, the privilege that we may be experiencing, is preventing us from seeing the things that we need the prophets to point out to us, right? Like it's almost, it's almost like our, our role is maybe to be listening more than trying to see those things ourselves and critique those things ourselves maybe i don't know it's just a just yeah. a thought though yeah that was that was just my thought but you said it a lot better than i did <laughs> <laughs> we're working together that's how that's how we do this this here is that we try to try to make sense of things when we're asking really hard questions and i i started off with a really hard hard question too but yeah, I, I really appreciate that. Is there more you want to say about that? This is kind of a small example, but I think that it's kind of getting at the way that our positions like, keep us from seeing things. So 
in Pennsylvania at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic, when the governor closed all non-essential businesses, he also closed laundromats, which would make sense if you and everyone you know has a washer and a dryer at home. But it doesn't really make sense if people have to use the washer and the dryer at the laundromat in a <laughs> pandemic to keep their clothes clean. So I think at, at that level that he was thinking, he was using his own experience and probably even the experience of people around him to assume that the laundromats aren't essential. Wow. That's a powerful example. It really is. And it, it may sound, as you said, small on the surface. But it gets at this work of this work of seeing, this work of prophecy, as not just like railing against the machine constantly, <laughs> but as seeing and identifying things as the way they are, with a vision of how things could be. And so identifying identifying that need offers a very clear opportunity to do so. And at the same time, for someone maybe like the governor of Pennsylvania or like the leader of our one of our congregations or a leader in another situation, limiting their decision-making to their own echo chamber leads to those kinds of things. Whereas if you're developing a community, a team of people from a variety of backgrounds, you begin to ask the questions that lead you to different answers. And that's, gosh, that's so... That's so profound when you think about the potential work of the church, too. The church as a prophetic community that sees the world the way it is and has hope for the way the world could or ought to or will be. The way that we see our neighbors who are hurting and are able to communicate God's love, either through our words or through our actions. The ways that we're able to look at things in our community that are just wrong or unfair or unjust and work to either offer an alternative or change the system that's going on. And it feels like the work of a prophetic community relies on that same kind of diverse, multifaceted storytelling that allows multiple experiences and multiple differences to help communicate and discover together what a faithful response and xyz situation may actually look like so let me apply that you're okay. saying that if governor wolf had listened to some other voices maybe he would have realized that laundry mats are essential in a pandemic okay yes <laughs> that's what i thought you were saying that it's that it's when yes exactly it's when we listen to other voices that we can see some of those things that we don't see right well, it's the old saying, right? If two heads are better than one, right? Like when a community comes together and their stories and their experiences and their hopes and their dreams are all on the table together, you have a much deeper well of resources. And uh, I, I don't want to simplify all of that folks are bringing to the table to information, but you have like this data bank of things that can help inform your decisions in a different way. So if you're a predominantly white congregation that worships in a historically black neighborhood, deciding what that community needs on your own, you might strike it rich and like come up with a good idea that happens to work. 
But how much more profound can your work be if you don't just ask the question, hey, what do you all need? But, hey, we're part of this community too. How can we work to make this place better? Hmm. What do we need to look for so we can see and identify the way things are and offer a new vision in the meantime? So, yes, I think the example with <laughs> Governor, Governor Wolf, which I say is Wolf, you say is Woof, that's fine. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> so I think your example that you offer is is very clear. And that example also translates over to the types of communities that we've experienced for a long time. And I think the thing that I'm wrestling with, too, is what it means to be prophetic potentially in the same space in the same geographic area or even with some of the same people over time Hmm. Hmm. and i'm mindful of this you know this passage is in the lectionary for all saints day uh, which is a beautiful celebration and in the life of the church that remembers all of those that have come before us in faith and have laid the foundation for our faith today who are no longer no longer living on this earth and thinking about the work of generations past to do that hard work of seeing so that we could even move our way back to a curtain that's Mm. farther back and farther back Mm. and keep doing that work of mishpat justice in in the world today like it wouldn't be possible without the work of those generations just thinking about how that work translates over time too, how communities can work for different things, in this, even in the same the same areas. My hope is always that a hundred years from now, my ancestors think I was just terribly backwards, and that they think my perception of God's love and its kind of corollary to work for justice here on Earth is just too small. Hmm. Yeah, my goodness. I can only hope for more generations that continue to dream big as a result of the big dreams that the generations preceding them have had and have held. Seth, I'm really grateful for that thought, and I think it's a really powerful one for us to reflect on here and to to finish on, honestly, as we consider the work of those that have come before us since the days of Micah, Mm -hmm. even, to identify the places where the world is not aligned with God's vision for the world. And I can only hope and pray that we can not only seek out new ways to see clearly, but lay the foundation for generations to come too. So I uh, came across this prayer from uh, a theological group and and specifically an uh, Instagram account that I (laughs) appreciate a lot. But just in light of this passage, in light of All Saints Day, thought it'd be an appropriate way for us to end this episode. So this is from the account on Instagram and uh, theological thinking group, really, called Infleshed, hmm. which is a group that really focuses on removing, removing our imagery and metaphors from God, from harmful imagery and metaphors that are specifically tied to gender. Hmm. Uh, and uh, and and sexuality, and so I, I just found this prayer really profound. It is based on the first Psalm, 
but uh, I think has something to speak to us in this too. So will you pray with me? I'd love to. We are inseparable from generations past and generations future. The lives of the ones who came before us are present all around us. The needs of those to come call upon us today. What are we doing with all we have inherited? The wonderful and the terrible. What will we leave behind? May the holy things, the righteous things, the things that make us brave in spirit and fierce in hope, be our source of wisdom and guidance as we strive to live faithfully to the sacred, to each other, to those past and yet to come. In these days we have been given. Mindful of the many names by which your children cry out to you from all over the world, I pray in the name of the one who became enfleshed for our sake, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. To our listeners, thanks for joining us. Be sure to subscribe and tune in for our next episode. Seth, what story will we tell next week? Next week, we're talking about the parable of the ten bridesmaids. But until then, leave us a review and find us on Twitter and Instagram to continue the conversation. Thanks for walking us through that story, Jonathan. Thanks for helping me tell it. <laughs> <laughs>